But I always make sure this lapel mic is off. <laughs> Speaking of this new microphone, for those of you who can't see it, that's, a, that's designed to be that way. Um, I was reminded as I was putting this thing on and I was having some troubles with it because I don't wear earrings, and, but I'm thinking about getting one. And, and, and this one loops over the top of my ear and I was reminded of an Anglican priest and the Anglican priest had a problem with all this new technology. And, uh, and I, I still get a hard, I, my, my wife gives me a hard time and friends give me a hard time about the fact that, you know, all my notes I handwrite. And, that, you know, they think that maybe this computer thing's here to stay. And, and um, you, know, you know, use a word processor. And it's like, you know what, when I write it down, I can find it. It's right in front of me. And I have to go store it, bring up the file, bring it up, it disappears. Where does it go? When I'm writing it, it's right here. It does not go anywhere. And uh, so anyway, the, uh, the, the, this Anglican priest, he was having a problem because the church was trying to get him, you know, to use this new technology. And, you know, so he, he had one of these lapel mics and he put it on and, and uh, as they were testing it, you know, he was getting real frustrated. And I don't know if you know anything about the Anglicans, but they're very ritualistic in their, in their worship, in their liturgy. And a lot of things that they do have to do with, uh, you know, the priest will do a reading and the, the congregation, you know, it's a conditioned response, basically. They'll just respond accordingly, sometimes without a whole lot of thought because, you know, they do it all regularly. And so that's kind of the way it went. Well, anyway, he's in the middle of a mass. And the first time he wore one of these things and he's real frustrated and, you know, and he hears this tinty sound and then he hears this echoing and this reverberation and, you know, and, and he's getting more and more frustrated as it goes on, but he's trying to be in control. You know, it is one like people know how frustrated he is. And uh, finally, you know, he hears it, this echo for the last time and he goes, you know, there's something wrong with this microphone. And the congregation immediately responds, and also with you. <laughs> you know, didn't give it a lot of thought or, or maybe they did, but the story reminds me of the many times that I and others have uh, responded to questions without giving much consideration uh, to what was being asked. If you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like you answer it and you go, well, wait a minute, what, what did you just say and what did I just agree to? You know, so, uh, and, and in fact, several years ago, we had in a company that I was work, where I was working, we had a young man who um, claimed to be a believer in Mormonism. And, uh, and I know I've shared this before, but it, it, it introduces what I want to talk about today, and that is that he, he had a belief in Mormonism. And so as we got into a, a spiritual conversation uh, one particular day, I asked him this question, and it, and it introduces a series that we started right before Christmas, and that is, you know, who is Jesus? You know, to you as a Mormon, a person who adheres to the beliefs of, of Mormonism, who is Jesus to the Mormon? You know, to you, who is Jesus? And, I sa and he said that, uh, well, Jesus is a God. I said, oh, so he, he, he's a God. I mean, is he God? Is he equal to the Father, but distinct as the Son? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. He is a God. He is separate from the Father, Elohim. He is and was a created spirit being, a spirit child of the Father and of the Heavenly Mother, and is the elder brother of all human spirit. I said, well, well, let me ask you something. How did he become a God? And he said, well, he did good works. I said, well, what kind of good works does one have to do to become a God? And he said, well, he goes, um, you know, you have to be faithful to the Mormon church leaders. You have to be faithful to Mormon tithing and Mormon baptism, uh, ordination, marriage, and, you know, and the secret temple rituals. Uh, you have to be a member of the Mormon church. And so as he went through and explained that, I, I kind of was a little bit troubled by the answer from the standpoint that, and I asked him the question, well, I asked him two questions. I said, there's two things that you said that really bother, or there's several things, but two things that trouble me more than anything else. And I said, Jesus Christ lived 800, 1800 years before Joseph Smith founded Mormonism in 1830. So how could he have been a member of the Mormon church and how could he have been a member in good standing who did all of these good works? I mean, he lived 1,800 years before Mormonism was ever founded. So, and, the, and the second thing is, is that, you know, how, how could he become a God by doing good works? And what good works were they that he did? And for the first question, he didn't have an answer. But he was really 
glad that I had the second question, which was basically, can a liar become a God? And so we went into that and he goes, absolutely not. A liar can never or cannot become a God. I said, hmm, that's interesting. I said, what if I could show you from the Bible that Jesus claimed to be God, equal to the Father, but distinct as the Son? Would he be a liar? And if so, how can you say that he is a God? And he looked at me and he said, I gotta go talk to my uncle. He's an elder in the church. You know, I gotta go figure it out. I gotta go ask somebody who can answer that question because I've never thought it through myself. I've always believed what people have told me. And there is no more dangerous place to be in life than just flat out believing what someone else has to say without examining the evidence for yourself. That is perhaps the most dangerous place to ever be in life. And I realize that all of us are susceptible to that because we've all got people in our life who are experts at what they do. But even when we're trusting those who are experts at what they do, we're trusting them based on character, we're trusting them based on reputation, we trust them based on referrals from people of character that would refer them to us. There's always some basis that we go on to trust the information that we're gonna get from somebody. We just don't flat out believe what they have to say without ever checking into the facts or examining the evidence. So as we go through this and address the question, who is Jesus and what difference does it really make? We're gonna take a look today as we continue in this series on the, cl the claims of Jesus Christ. You know, what did Jesus claim? Who did he claim to be? And on that basis, does he give us any other options besides the choices that are laid out clearly to us? So if you've got your Bible with, us, with you, we're gonna take a look at John chapter five will be the first thing that we look at. Uh, first claim that's made of six claims that we'll find as we go through the study today, six claims of Jesus. They're not the only claims, but they're the six that we're gonna look at and examine in our time together. And uh, starting with the first one is found in John chapter five. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter five. What are the claims that Jesus made of himself? In John chapter five, starting with, um, jump down to verse 16. It says, and for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them and said, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus in this passage is claiming equality with God. In the passage, we find a direct confrontation between Jesus and, and some Jews that were triggered by Jesus curing a lame man on the Sabbath and then telling him after he had healed him to pick up his pallet and walk. And if you look in verse five, we're told that the man was there who had been sick for 38 years. 38 years he had never walked. And in this passage, we find Jesus not only healing him, but telling him to then pick up his pallet and walk. When this was noted by the religious leaders, it says, therefore, the Jews were saying to him, the one who was cured, it is the Sabbath in verse 10, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So who do you think you are? We don't care if you were healed today. Don't you realize that today's the Sabbath and you're working by carrying your pallet and that's against the laws of God to do so. Totally ignoring the fact of this tremendous miracle that took place in their midst, the sign that Jesus had performed to point to himself as the Messiah, the savior of the world, which we'll see more of in a minute. But they totally ignored that and jumped to, but wait a minute, who do you think you are carrying a pallet? You're working and that violates the Sabbath. And in this particular response that Jesus had to these men, he's looking at them saying, hey, you know what? In verse 17, he's saying, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself. Now, some would sit there and go, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you could come to me and say, hey, Chuck, anyone can say my father is working until now and I'm working, so what? I mean, what's the significance of that? And when we looked at it, we got to understand and recognize that whenever we study a document, and here we're looking at the Gospel of John, whenever you study a document, it's, it's critical that we study it in the context in which it is stated. Who it's addressed to, 
who the people are, what the conversation is regarding, what, what's, what, you know, what, what's revolving around all of these things that are going on here. What's the language that's used, the culture, especially the person or persons that are being addressed in this particular uh, situation, and then come to find out what's really happening here. You know, Jesus is being confronted by Jewish religious leaders, men who understood the word of God, at least they thought they did, that spent time studying the word of God, recognized the word of God for what it was, and then as a result would measure anything that Jesus said according to the standard that they had studied all of their life. So somebody could come to you and say, hey, you know what, what's a big, my father's working, hey, I'm working, he's not retired, I'm not retired, what's the big deal, my father's working until now and so am I. Well, you look at it and go, well, it doesn't sound like much of an inflammatory statement until you recognize what they understood him to be saying. It says, for this cause, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Well, that's a pretty drastic response to somebody saying, my father was working until now and even I am working. I mean, think about it. You could come to me and say, my father's working and I'm working. And I could say, I'm gonna kill you for that. You go, well, that's a little bit extreme. You know, unless you stole my job, you know, it would be like, well, wait a minute, that's kind of an extreme response, don't you think? So they understood him to be saying something that was highly significant. It said, and, and we don't have to guess. You know, the beauty of the word of God is that God is very clear in what the message is that he wants to convey. Sometimes we gotta really dig in, sometimes we have to search the scriptures, sometimes, you know, we have to understand the language and the culture and the context. But at the end of the day, anyone who can reason can read this passage and say, you know what, here's the problem. Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. That's what it says. They wanted to kill him all the more, not only because he broke the law of God by healing someone on the Sabbath and then on top of it telling him to pick up his pallet and walk, but also he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That's why there was such a drastic reaction to what he said. And the reason is, notice this in verse 17. He calls God my father. My father, and then he adds, is working until now, and I myself am working. So what you saw, you saw God do. My father is working, and I am working. And they knew he was claiming to be equal to God. Now, the reason that it becomes so significant is that the Jews never called God my father. They said, our father, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our father who is in heaven. They never called God their father, never said my father, they said our father. And if they ever said my father is in heaven, they would always clarify it by my father who is in heaven, but they rarely if ever said that. And as early as the age of 12, Jesus said, my father. When he was lost, so to speak, and his mother and father were trying to find him, Joseph and Mary, and he was in the temple, he said, I must be about my father's business. You know, my father. It was very clear and evident that from the very beginning, Jesus called and referred to the father as my father. Dr. Robert Lindsay explains the significance of this expression. He says, synagogue prayers contain the expression, our father, Avenue, who is in heaven. Many times, and Jesus taught his disciples to pray a prayer, which also begins, our father, who art in heaven. The expression, my father, Avi, however, almost certainly must have seemed improper to the Jews of that period. Only once in the Hebrew scripture is God referred to as my father. And that is in Psalm 89 which speaks of the coming Messiah in verse 26 reads this way. He will call to me, Ava Atta, you are my father. The Messiah has the right to call God father, my father. I'm quite sure that the rabbis of Jesus' day taught the people to say our father who is in heaven because they say my father was reserved for the Messiah alone. 2 Samuel 7, 14 also contains a prophecy about the Messiah. I will be a father to him and he will be to me a son. This verse marks the beginning of a coming Messiah who is the son of God. It was known from Psalm 89, 26, Psalm 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, Psalm 2, verse 7, that the Messiah would be the son of God, but these verses don't contain the expression son of God. What is used is he will call to me you are my father. 
I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me, and you are my son this day, and I have brought you forth. The Hebraic way of expressing Messiahship is the way the Holy Spirit spoke, and it's also the way that Jesus spoke. So when he said to them, my father is working until now and I myself am working, they immediately recognized from scripture that Jesus Christ was claiming to be the Messiah, the promised savior of the world, the one that they were expecting and had been waiting for. He claimed to be God and made himself equal to God and they knew it because they knew scripture. See, you and I, the protection that we have against the enemy and against deception and against the evil that's in the world and all who mislead us is a knowledge of the truth of the word of God. For those of us who are born again, we have the spirit of God who lives within us and reminds us of the things of God, the words of God, the scriptures that we have to study, to memorize, to meditate, to dwell on, to to, to learn and to, to have in our hearts. Thy word I've hid in my heart so that I don't sin against you, God, and also so that I know the difference between a lie when it's being spoken and your very truth. I've got something to compare it to. Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, used the word of God as an answer to the temptations that were there. He said, you know what, turn these rocks to stone. And Jesus said, you know, the word of God says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the very word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He understood scripture. And you and I must understand the word of God in order to recognize and identify when something is not right before God. And we hold it to the standard that's set in the word of God. When someone comes to us and they tell us to do something, we should immediately compare it and check it to what God says is right or wrong to make those decisions. No matter how badly sometimes we want to do something, if it isn't pleasing before the Lord, we got to say, no, wait a minute. It's not the voice of God. It's the voice of the enemy who's continually trying to mislead us and take us down a path that's wrong before God. So when they said, you know, when Jesus said, my father is working until now, they knew what he was referring to because they knew scripture and they compared it to the word of God. And the only difference between understanding and receiving and recognizing Christ as a savior was that their hearts were hard before God. Their heads, they knew it, but their hearts were hard. That's why when Jesus was being crucified and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he hung on the cross, immediately anyone with any recognition of scripture whatsoever who was within his hearing would have turned to Psalm 22 and read the Psalm of the one who would come and suffer and die. Isaiah 53, that that Jesus would come as a suffering servant. He would be crucified 800 years before crucifixion was known. It was written in the Psalm that Jesus would come and be crucified. And anyone who had a hunger and a heart for truth and knowing God would have heard those words, immediately went back to Psalm 22 and went, my God, he is the savior of the world. But you have to know the word of God to be able to know what's being said. That's why when you and I read through this, we go, what's a big deal? My father's working until now and I myself am working. Wow, that seems like such a drastic response to such a simple statement. But we're told, fortunately, in this passage that, you know what? Hey, they knew Jesus to be claiming himself equal with God. That's why there was such a strong reaction. A.T. Robertson writes this, who is a Greek scholar, said that the one is neuter, not masculine in the Greek, and does not indicate one in person or purpose, but rather one in essence of nature. Robertson then adds, this crisp statement is the climax of Christ's claims about the relation between the father and himself, the son, and it stirs the Pharisees to uncontrollable anger. This isn't the only time that Jesus ever claimed to be equal to the Father. Turn ahead to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, looking at verse uh, 22. We read, at the time of the feast of the dedication, at, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. It says, the Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I love this question. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Like they were trying to trick him. You know, just tell us so that we all understand. Notice what Jesus said. He goes, I already told you. I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these bear witness of me. What he said was, I've already told you. We just saw from John chapter five that he clearly claimed to be the Messiah. And they're saying, when are you gonna tell us if you're really the Messiah? He said, I already told you. And in fact, you know, you wanna kill me because I claim to be equal to God. I, you know, quoted from the Psalms. I quoted from the Old Testament. I claim to be the Messiah. I already told you that. 
In John chapter eight, look at verse 58. Jesus did the same thing. He said, even before Abraham existed, I am. I mean, if you're gonna memorize any verse of scripture, it's a simple verse to remember. John 8, 58, even before Abraham existed, I am. Notice if you're looking at that passage, what the reaction was by those who heard the statement. And they want to kill him again. Why? Because he claimed to be equal to the father. It's a direct relationship between that statement and the Exodus when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell Pharaoh, I am. And they wanted to kill him. So they're coming to him again saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us, are you really the Messiah or aren't you? He said, look, I told you already that I am and you don't believe me. And then the works that I do speak for themselves. I healed a man that never walked in 38 years. He stood up and walked and all you got hung up on was the fact he was carrying a stretcher or pallet instead of the fact I healed him. So you didn't even look at the sign that I gave you. You know, he went around doing the signs that he did and all these things were done so that he might be revealed to the world as the savior of the world. That's why he did it. That's what all the signs were for. That's why when John the Baptist was in prison and doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah, he told John's disciples to go back to him and say, the eyes of the blind are open, the ear, deaf of the ear can hear. Those who are lame and blind, you know, that, that can't walk are walking, the dead are raised. I mean, what else do you want to know? I'm doing it all. And yet they refused to believe. And that's what he said. And you do not believe. It means they didn't want to believe. They had an agenda and they didn't want to believe the evidence. He goes on, but you don't believe me. You know why? Because you're not of my sheep. And they probably really dug on that. You know, you, you don't believe me. And the reason you don't believe me is because you know what? You're lost. Isn't that the truth? When we share with others around us and we, sh we share the truth of Jesus Christ, we share what he's done, we share the claims that he's made and people go, no, I don't believe it. You know, I need more proof. What more proof do you need than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How many, quote, religious leaders that existed throughout human history ever came back from the dead? I mean, you believe somebody's dead. You, Joseph Smith, dead. You believe him, he's dead, he didn't come back. You know, every other major religious system of the world is following somebody who founded it that's dead. Now, physically dead, spiritually alive and waiting judgment, but the reality of it is no one ever came back from the dead. Jesus came back from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says, he doesn't come back from the dead, then our belief systems, like every other belief system, you know, we're all to be, you know, pitied because we believe in someone who's dead. But Jesus said, the reason you don't believe is because you're not one of my, my people. You know, you're not born again. You're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. And, and therefore, you don't believe, and that's just the way it is. Notice what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How do you know if you're really a child of God? Because you hear the truth of the word of God, the spirit of God who lives within you, and it's confirmed by the word of God. And you know what? And you walk in obedience with what you hear him say to do. There are so many people in the world who claim to be Christians who are living lives of disobedience, and I am so fearful for their final destiny only because Jesus said if you really love me you obey my commandments now you can be disobedient as a child of God but there's one thing that's better be true of you you better be miserable in your disobedience you better be convicted of your sin and you better be in rebellion against God and know the battle that's taken place because you know the right thing to do and you're choosing not to do it and that is different from those who are not born again because they don't know the right thing to do and therefore there's no struggle with what it is that they do but for God's people, anytime that you're in rebellion or I'm in rebellion, if we're really born again, we're in direct rebellion of God and we're fighting the spirit of God who's convicting us to do what's right before God. And he's constantly reminding us of the word of God. Amen? Well, see, well, he was going to say, hey, my father who has, notice this, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Man, what a verse of comfort. And I give eternal life. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And they shall never perish. I was, you know, people, but, but what if, unless, I don't see an unless, I don't see no but what ifs, everything I read in scripture says, if you really are a child of God, you're a child of God, and he doesn't kick you out of his family because you're stupid at some point in your life doing things you shouldn't be doing, it's like the prodigal son, he's just waiting for you to come to your senses, spiritual senses, come on back to your senses, come on back to God, and he's running to greet you when you repent and turn from sin and turn back to God. That's why when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
See, there's no what ifs, there's no unless. These promises are so clear, anybody can understand it. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and nobody is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And he answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you stoning me for? I mean, why are you stoning me? Which, what did I do that's causing you to want to stone me? The Jews answered him, for good work, we don't stone you. But for blasphemy and because you being a man. What they're saying, you being just a man, make yourself out to be equal to God. How much clearer does it get? They wanted a clear answer. He gave them another clear answer. See, Jesus continually spoke of himself as one in essence and nature with God. He said in John 8, 19, if you knew me, you would know my father also. In John 12, 45, he says, he who beholds me, he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. If you remember in John 14, when he was talking to Philip and Philip said, which way are you going and where's the father? He said, Philip, how long have I been with you? You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one in essence and in nature. All may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you don't honor me as you honor the Father, you dishonor both of us. Jesus claimed equality with God. Does that make Jesus equal to the Father? Absolutely not. And we need to be very clear about that. Does that make Jesus Christ the Father? No, the Father's the Father, the Son is the Son, but they're equal in essence and in nature. Three, God, three gods, three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit clearly revealed through scripture, three persons in one God. Hear, O Israel, and know this, that the Lord is one and there is no other God. They recognized that. That's why when Jesus claimed equality with God, they knew he was claiming to be God. And that's indeed what he did. Now, the second thing he also claimed is to be able to forgive sins, which is another claim of his deity. And in Mark chapter two, turn to Mark chapter two. This passage could easily be a sermon in itself, but in Mark chapter two, for our purposes, I just wanna focus and concentrate our attention on the fact that Jesus claimed to forgive sin. In Mark two, starting with verse one, we read this. And when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Isn't it great? Think about this for a second. Everything that Jesus spoke was the word of God. So it wasn't like when you got there, you were going to Bible study and somebody sharing the word of God with you because he is God and everything he shared was the word of God. How incredible is that? Is this important? Was, will this be on the test? You know, are these notes that we need to take? It's like everything he said was the word of God. And he was speaking the word to them. Of course he was. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they led down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. I love this. I mean, like I said, this is a sermon in itself, but what a great passage about friends that love at all times and a brother born for adversity. It's like, man, we can't get you in to see the Lord, but you know what? We got an idea, trust us. And they're hauling this dude up on the roof, man. They're ripping a big hole in the roof, dropping him through, which is real easy. You know, you know it's like uh, some of us had an old wood shingle roof, so we could do that. But, you know, for the rest of you, you got tile roofs, so it'd be a little tough. But this was just, you know, the, the, the grass and the thatch and the mud and stuff. It was just ripped the hole, dropped him right down through the middle. It says, and being able to get to the crowd, they took him up on the roof. And when they had dug an opening, they let him down on the pallet, which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, man, talk about faith. You know, we're gonna drop them down and that's, you know, God's always moved with compassion toward those in need, isn't he? Dropped them right down through the roof. He saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss this. Not all illness is caused by sin, but some is. Not all illness is caused by sin, but some is. And if you don't believe that, John chapter nine, the man born blind, they said, who sinned, this man or his father, that he would be born blind or his parents, that he'd be born blind. And Jesus said, neither. 
he was born blind so that the works of God may be displayed through what I'm about to do here. But the reality of it is, is that none of them sinned in that particular case, but there are other cases where illness, disease, sickness is a direct result of sin and rebellion against the standards of God in our life. To the church at Corinth, he said, you know what, some of you are sick because you are so disrespectful of the Lord's Supper. You've turned it into a big orgy and a drunk fest. And because of that, God has judged some of you and some of you are sick and even some of you have gone to sleep or God took you out. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, their sin of lying directly led to the consequence of their death. We cannot get around the reality that the world we live in, oftentimes our own problems are a result of the consequences of rebellion against God. Sexually transmitted diseases are one of the greatest illustrations of that truth. If you're not guilty of such behavior, you're not in a, a, a risk factor or category. And that's just the reality of it. You know, God says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's gonna reap. You know, you do what's right before God, he promises blessings. You do what's wrong before God, he promises that there'll be consequences for sin. And in this particular case, I want you to notice that Jesus went right to the root of the matter and he, and he dealt with the root problem and not the symptom. The symptom was that he was a paralytic and for some reason his sin led to that condition. And Jesus immediately went to the root and he said, your sins are forgiven. And that's huge. It's a huge statement, not only what he claims, but it's a huge statement for all of us to recognize and understand that many times in life, we deal with the symptoms instead of the root problem. And the root problem is that you are doing what's wrong before God and you need to repent. You need to turn from sin and turn to God. And it's amazing how many consequences and difficulties in our life are a direct result of what I always call self-inflicted wounds. Needless wounds. You know, the world is tough enough and the enemy is sharp enough and relentless enough not to have to have our own self-inflicted wounds that we deal with on a regular basis. God says, repent of sin and I will forgive you and cleanse you of all that unrighteousness. See, the paralytic was paralyzed because of sin in his life. You know, Jesus often spoke of sin and the consequences. You know, what's, what's so wonderful about this passage is that, you know, this man's greatest need was forgiveness, not to be healed physically. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Not all the rest of the things that we come to God and we pray about, and I'm not saying there's anything, that there's something wrong with those things because they're all well and good depending upon whether they're prayed within the will of God or not. But the reality of it is our greatest need, man's greatest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness, and the reason is it meets our greatest need. It came at the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing and it also has the most lasting result. And the question that you have to ask is, have you found forgiveness for your sins? All you need to do is drop on your knees, so to speak, and I have a humble heart before God, a broken and humble heart, a contrite heart God will never despise. A person who comes to God and, and seeks out his mercy and forgiveness for the sin of their life. What better way to start a new year than right here and right now to ask God to forgive you of sin in your life? that you know, and maybe nobody else but God knows that you're harboring before him. God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Make my heart pure before you. I wanna be a pure and clean, sanctified, set apart vessel for your purposes, for your kingdom, for your glory. I wanna make a difference for the kingdom of God this coming year. And the only way I can do that is I gotta be pure before you. God cannot bless, nor can he honor sin in any one of our lives. God can't honor the sin in the life of an individual. God can't honor the sin in, in, the, in the life of a church. God can't honor sin in the life of a people or a nation. A broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. See, Jesus met his greatest need and it led the religious leaders to accuse him of blasphemy, making himself equal to God. Notice this. In verse six, it says, but there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the beauty of all this is this. Jesus knew what they were thinking. It says that they were reasoning in their hearts. They were sitting there watching him with this smug look on their face like, you know, what's, who does he think he is? 
Only God can forgive sin. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Another example, the attribute of God, omniscient, he knows all things. Jesus knew, knew their thoughts because he's equal with God, he is God. He knew their thoughts and immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Can you imagine a response by them? A look on their face, who me? I wasn't, you know, how far can you go when you already know he knows everything you're thinking? Are you going to be stupid enough to say, well, if I say this, well, and then you guys go, oh, I don't even have to say anything because I can just think it and he knows what I'm going to say anyway. So I don't think I should think anything, which is about what they were doing at that point. So here's what Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, arise, take up your pallet and walk. What's easier to say? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. He arose immediately, took up the pallet, went out in the sight of all so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. They were sitting there, scribes, those who wrote down the word of God, Pharisees, the scribes were always together studying the word of God. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, a good scribe who knew this Old Testament would immediately think of all the scriptural references in the Old Testament that said only God can forgive sin. For example, Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins any longer. Can you imagine? They're sitting there listening. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they recognized that only God could forgive sin. And that's what caused them such a tremendous consternation on their part. According to Wycliffe Commentary, this is an unanswerable question. When Jesus said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? You notice what he's saying? What's easier? Obviously, it's easy to say either of them. Now demonstrate it with your actions. Jesus always demonstrated with his actions, his life and his lips always walked in harmony with one another. And it's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? It's easy to say, I'm a Christian. It's easy to say that I'm born again. It's easy to say that, you know what, I love the Lord. It's easy to say that, you know what, I want God to be first in my life. I wanna love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's easy to say all those things. Now demonstrate it in your actions. Demonstrate it in your actions. See, Jesus, what he was making a point was very simple. Anybody can say these things. People claim stupid things all the time. But the difference between Jesus and others is that what he claimed, he backed up with action. He said one day, he said, that, you know, and I will rise up on the third day. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. And he was referring to his body. Jesus said, I will come again. I will be raised up on the third day. Meet me in Galilee. You know what? The only difference between Jesus and the claims of others is that he always followed through on anything he said to do. So he said, what's easier? I said, well, it's, always, it's easy to say you're forgiven. No one can really tell whether you are or not. He goes, but in order to know that I have authority to forgive sin, get up. And he did immediately. Isn't that great? And they were blown away. And rightfully so. I mean, think about this. This is incredible. You know, this whole concept of forgiveness is very difficult at times to understand because you can say, well, wait a minute. The Bible, only God can forgive sin. Aren't we to forgive one another? Well, if we're to forgive one another, then if you offend me and I say, I forgive you, I'm not God because I've forgiven you of sin. If I ask for forgiveness and you forgive me, you're not God because you forgive me of sin. And so how do we, how do we you know, reconcile this whole idea that only God can forgive sin and how does it apply to what we're going through here? And then it dawned on me as I was wrestling with this, chewing on this, going, well, God, I understand if only God can forgive sin, but we can forgive and we're told to forgive. We're told to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God and Christ has forgiven us. If we're told to forgive and I forgive, that certainly doesn't make me God. But here's the difference. Jesus claimed to forgive this man's sin against God. Not against another man, not against anybody else, but against God. When he said, your sins are forgiven, he was saying, your sin against God is forgiven. When he caught the woman in adultery, he said, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. 
when the woman came to the house and she was there and she was guilty of many sins against God, Jesus said, your sins against God are forgiven. Well, how can Jesus forgive sin against God unless there were sins against himself and he's God, therefore he can forgive? That's exactly what happened. They recognized and understood that he was claiming to forgive sin against God and only God can forgive sin against God. Jesus therefore forgave him of his sin because Jesus is God. Claiming to be equal to God and demonstrating it by the fact that he forgave sin. A third thing that he claimed, and we'll tie some of these together because he also claimed to be, a, to be the son of man. Now, if you've noted from Mark chapter two, he said something in verse 10 that would have stood out in addition to everything else that he said. He said, but in order that you may know that the son of man, this title, the son of man is used 14 times in Mark's gospel. It's used 81 times in the gospel altogether. And it's another claim of Jesus to being Messiah. And where it comes from is in Daniel chapter seven. And if you've got your Bible and you wanna look at it with me in Daniel chapter seven, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus Christ refers back to Daniel's prophecy of the coming Messiah or the savior of the world. In Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, we read these words. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, which is the name for God the Father, and was presented before him. The son, one like a son of man was coming, presented before him, God the Father, and to him the son was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The reason that this is so important is he's, he claimed to be the son of man. 81 times in the gospel, Jesus claimed to be son, the son of man. They would recognize Daniel chapter seven as a title that was ascribed to the Messiah. When the son of man came, this is what would be true. In Mark chapter 14, jump ahead to the trial of Jesus. And notice Jesus again uses this title, Son of Man, and it's interesting when we look at this and see what he's talking about because in verse 60, we read this, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ the son of the blessed one. Now notice this, the high priest, Jesus doesn't answer his, his allegations, but when he, he asked him to swear before God that he's telling the truth, which is really interesting because he's asking him to swear you know, to himself, you know, are you telling the truth and hold yourself accountable? Um, he's saying, you know what, Here's, here, here was his answer. Jesus said, I am. And notice this, if that isn't enough, John 8, 58, remember? Before Abraham existed, I am. He said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am. And you shall see, notice this, the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Notice what he said. He said, I'm the son of the blessed one. I'm the one who would sit at the right hand of God and all power and dominion is given to me. I'm the son of man who comes in the clouds and each one of these refers back to what we just read in Daniel chapter seven. One like a son of man was coming and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Are you that person we've been looking for? I am. And he quoted Daniel 7 in case they had any questions about his identity. He claimed to be the son of man, fulfilling every prophecy that led to his, his arrival here this side of eternity. 
Robert Anderson points out, no confirmatory evidence is more convincing than that of hostile witnesses. And the fact that the Lord laid claim to his deity is uncontestably established by the action of his enemies. We must remember that the Jews were not a tribe of ignorant savages, but a highly cultured, intensely religious people. And it was upon this very charge that without a dissenting voice, his death was decreed by the Sanhedrin. He claimed to be the savior of the world. And as a result, they accused him of blasphemy. Go back to, to Mark chapter 14. It said that, and some began to spit at him and to blindfold him. In verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need of witness is this? It was an act that was taking place in front of everybody. He tore his garment and said, this man is claimed to be equal to God. Is there anything left that we have to discuss? And they all said, no, it was all very clear to us, his claim. The trial of Jesus Christ is that he claimed to be equal to God. That's why he was put to death for telling the truth. And in him, there was no sin. He was guiltless. That should be enough evidence in itself. But Jesus claimed equality with God. He claimed to forgive sins. He claimed to be the son of man. Direct messianic, when you look at Daniel 7, a direct quote from Daniel 7, he claimed to answer prayer. Who except God can answer prayer? If you really stop and think about it, Jesus claimed he could answer prayer, even invited his followers to pray in his name. In John 14, verses 13 and 14, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, so often people have that tag, pray in Jesus' name. You know, you, you pray and they say, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know what? The bottom line is in Jesus' name simply means this, by the authority of Jesus Christ as God. In the name of Jesus doesn't have to be a tagline that we put on every other prayer. You know, it just means to pray in the name of the authority of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. To pray in his name, under his authority. By what authority do we have that we can go to the very throne room of God? It's by our relationship, through our relationship in Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us. We can boldly approach the throne of grace that we may find mercy in our time of need. God, you know, Jesus has given us access through the cross and by the resurrection that you and I could go to God the Father and pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a child of God in his name, according to his will and not our own desires. The problem with most prayer is that we look at God as somehow or another existing to serve us rather than we exist to serve him. And when we pray in the name of the Lord, we pray according to the will of Jesus Christ, not my will be done, but yours be done. God, what is it in this situation in my life that you wanna use for your glory and for your purposes? You know, we tend to be very selfish in our prayers and that comes with the sin nature. It comes with selfishness. We wanna to go to God and say, eliminate everything in my life that's uncomfortable. I want it this way. And yet at the same time, God says, don't pray that way. Pray as Jesus prayed, not my will be done, but yours be done. What is it that you want to do, God, through these circumstances in my life that will be for your glory, for your praise, for your kingdom, and ultimately for my spiritual growth that I'll become more like Jesus? So often we ask God to remove all those things that would help us to grow spiritually because we don't understand that God is here for us to serve him and not for him to serve us. Jesus said, whatever you pray in my name, ask and it shall be given to you. He also claimed the ultimate authority. You know, he said to the high priest, you know, it's like, don't you realize, and Pilate said the same thing, hey, don't you realize who you're talking to? Man, I have the authority to put you to death. And you know what Jesus said to him? Hey, the only reason you got any authority is because it's been given to you by God. Like, don't ever mistake that. Romans 13, all authority has been established by God, who's the ultimate authority. What Daniel chapter 7 tells us is that Jesus Christ has been given ultimate authority. He has authority over everything and everybody. That when he came, his kingdom would be established and there would be no end. It all would come to him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Some it will be the last thing that they do before they're ushered into an eternity separated from God. But the reality of it is he claims to have ultimate authority over laws and institutions. In Matthew 16, verse 19, it says that he, Jesus said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, think about that. How could Jesus give a man authority over all those things unless he ultimately had authority over everything that he can give Peter authority over those areas of life? He had ultimate authority over everything. 
He also had authority over the laws and institutions. In the Sermon on the Mount, remember when Jesus, if you read through it and look at Matthew chapter five through seven, read it on your own, but listen to what it has to say. Jesus often said this, you have heard it said, or you have seen it written, and then he goes like this, but I say to you, well, wait a minute. You have heard it said, you have seen it written, but I say to you, what's he saying? He said, hey, you know what? I'm just completing what I've already started. I'm, I'm helping you to understand even further. You saw all the external aspects of the laws of God, but I say to you that, you know what? If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. You were dealing with the external, but I'm helping you understand the spirit behind it. You said that, you know, if you're angry at somebody, you know, you've committed murder in your heart. But I say to you, and think about what he was saying. He was saying that, hey, I'm just continuing to teach you the things that you've already started to learn that we've given to you, you know, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we've given to you, the Word of God. And now you're gonna continue to learn it. And, 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 and the, after the resurrection, the Bible says that Jesus was on the face of the earth for 40 more days. And you know what he did? He continued to teach them the things of God. I don't know about you, but I've begun to realize very quickly in my spiritual walk that you know what, as much as I think I know about God, I don't know hardly anything about God. I mean, that's not to deny the things that we do know clearly because the word of God teaches us that. But man, we should never grow tired in our quest and our search and our thirst for learning more about God and his truth. I always laugh at people, well, I studied that, but oh, what, 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 what are we doing? It's book of James? Oh, I've studied that twice already. Wow, you must know everything in it. What's uh, James chapter six, verse 10 say? And I look at you like, uh, hey, there's only five chapters. I mean, if you're thinking about it that long, you must not know a whole bunch about it. Jump in there now, come on. That was just a simple test. You know, and it's like, man, I mean, God is inexhaustible. How can you ever learn everything there is to know about God? How can we ever get tired of studying the word of God? We get tired of it because we do it ritualistic. We make commitments. I'm gonna read through the Bible in a year. And instead of enjoying our time and, and reading and, and spending time with God and, and that fellowship that we have, it becomes a to-do thing on our list of things to get done today. And I gotta read these six chapters today. And man, if I don't read these six today, I gotta read 12 tomorrow. If I don't read 12 tomorrow, I gotta read 24 in three days. And I just give up. What's today? January 5th. I quit. Wow, steadfast, immovable, way to go. You know, it's like, come on, you know, enjoy your time in the word of God. Enjoy your time with the Lord. Enjoy your time as he reveals truth to you. Man, can you ever get enough of this? I just, I can't wait to show up on Sundays. Like sometimes I'm a little bit late, but, but, but most of the time I can't wait to get here. It's like, man, are you kidding me? This is good stuff and I can't wait to share it because I hope that you understand how good it is and I hope as you apply the things that you learn, you understand how good our God is and everything he says is true. Say, confess my sin, man, I'm freed up. Man, I had this burden, I've been walking around. Why? Because I've been doing what's wrong before God and I just haven't wanted to stop doing it. I've been binding the lie. Confess your sin, stop doing it, repent from it. Turn to God, man, you'll be freed up. Then do the things God calls you to do. And you go, man, there's so much blessing and obedience. This is awesome. I never knew it could be like this because you bought into the lie. Now believe the truth and live accordingly. This is awesome. This is great stuff. And if that's not good enough, all the claims that he's made, think about this, and I can give you eternal life. I can give eternal life. John 10, we saw in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus called himself the bread of life, which came down from heaven, the living bread, which came down from heaven. And he said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise it up at the last day. Eating and drinking are very common biblical symbols used to describe faith. 
to act upon something. He says, believe upon me, act upon me, put your faith and trust in me and you will have eternal life and no one will ever snatch it from you. Everlasting life. In closing, as we look at all this, you know, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus claims to be equal with God. Jesus claims to be able to forgive sin, which only God can do. Jesus claims to be the son of man, the one who was promised by God to come into the world, the savior, even as Daniel 7 describes who he is. Jesus claims to answer prayer. Jesus claims to be the ultimate authority and he claims to give eternal life. The distinct claims of Jesus to be God eliminate the popular ploy of skeptics who regard Jesus as just a good moral man or as a prophet who said a lot of profound things. I think it's really important that God's people begin to recognize and understand the deception that's in the world today to try to embrace a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the Bible. So often the conclusion is passed off as only one that's you know, acceptable to scholars or the, as the, or, or the obvious result of the intellectual process. You know, Jesus is a good man. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a religious leader. Hey, listen, you know what? Those are not options. Those are not acceptable options. To Jesus, who men and women believed him to be was of fundamental importance. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God, even one who has come in the flesh. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was critical to Jesus that people identified him as who he is. We cannot allow people to believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis, who was a professor at Cambridge University and at once, and once an agnostic, understood this very clearly when he wrote this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Lewis adds, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. Let's go back to my office conversation. If Jesus Christ claimed to be equal with God, if Jesus Christ claimed to forgive sins, if Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of Man, the Messiah promised to come into the world, if Jesus Christ claimed to answer prayer and be the ultimate authority, and Jesus Christ claimed to give eternal life, it is not an option available for you to accept him as anything less than Lord, liar, or lunatic. Who is Jesus to you? Your answer will determine your eternal destiny. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human flesh, the savior of the world, the one who has come to give eternal life to those who come to him. Do you know him as your Lord and savior? If not, today's the day. Father, thank you for your word. The clarity of it, and God, may no one here who hears these words be deceived by the lies of the enemy who want to invent a Jesus that does not exist. Jesus Christ never gave man the option to consider him just a great moral teacher, a good guy, a rabbi, a religious leader of some sort. He claimed to be God. He claimed equality with the Father. He claimed to forgive sin as only God can forgive sin. He made numerous claims. He said he is the only way to heaven and there is no other way but through him. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes unto the Father but through me. He said that he is the narrow gate and that broad is the way that leads to destruction who would consider Jesus to be anything less than Lord and God. 
Father, my prayer is for those who are here today that have never come to know Christ in a personal way as their Savior, that they would turn from sin and recognize that they fall short of the glory of God, that they would throw themselves upon your mercy for forgiveness, that they would believe upon Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. For it says, to as many believed him and received him, you have given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name, that they would come into that relationship with you here and now. We're told also that once we are in Christ, that no one will ever snatch us out of your hands, that we have an eternal security that's based upon the promises that you made and not based on anything that we've done. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. Lord, we thank you that your word clearly identifies Jesus Christ as who he is, that he's Lord God, and we praise him in his name. Amen.